0: I'm excited to be with you all here this morning. Um, before we get going, going to go ahead and open in prayer, so please uh, pray with me. King Jesus, we thank you for another day that we're going to be able to gather here, um, particularly in a free country as your church. I thank you that you've blessed us here, that you've allowed people to risk their lives and die for the freedom, that we don't worry about police storming in um, shutting us down lord but we can have the safety and security that is brought about um, from this nation as um, we have laws to protect our freedoms here so we thank you for that um, but even as we thank you for this nation lord we pray for it um, we pray that you be with our leaders um, that it may continue to go well with us we pray that our leaders may come to know you as the one true god and christ as their savior um, the one who will ultimately judge all the earth and we also pray that we as the church may continue to perform our God-given responsibility to proclaim for the ends of the earth. And as we gather this morning, please give us ears to hear, a heart to understand. Uh, may I in- decrease and you increase as your word is proclaimed. Um, and may this all be to your glory and your son's name. Amen. So before we get going with Psalm 2, just a brief background. As Rich mentioned, um, we have that recording of Psalm 1. And Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 are kind of serving as this introduction into the psalm. Psalm 1 is talking about the person who delights in God's word. What happens when the individual is delighting in God's word? Whereas Psalm 2 is more addressed to a nation. It's more talking about nations and groups of people, and particularly these as it relates to the line of David um, through the covenant promise in 2 Samuel. So in 2 Samuel, God promises to David that I will put a king from your line on the throne forever. And so this is a royal psalm that was in Old Testament times used to kind of decree, this is the new king. And it was read um, when that new king would come into power. But now after the cross, we can look back and we could see that what this psalm is truly talking about, what's at the heart of this psalm is not this earthly kingdom that God has established or not only this earthly kingdom, but also ultimately the one that is established Through Christ. And so, with that in mind, please turn to your Bibles uh, to Psalm 2. We're going to go ahead and read that. Um, It's on page 448 in one of the Pew Bibles, if you have one of those. Um, But please stand with me as we go ahead and read through Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? Ask of me, and I will give, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with the rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear, and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. I'd like to open today with a question. Um, Right now, in June of 2021, do you feel the nation's rage? Anyone? Anyone feeling the nation's rage a little bit? Feels like the temperature maybe turned up a little bit? We have news organizations that build profit by making us feel like the world's on fire. But we have actual nations raging against against the lord against his law we have rising violence across many of our major metropolitan areas violent crime is rising at crazy rates right now where people are being murdered every day we have the gender the transgender movement where people are literally raging against god for the gender that they that he's assigned them saying that he doesn't get to call them whether they're male or female but they can choose for themselves We see the nations raging as and we have people who are acting out against other image bearers of God purely because of the color of their skin or because of where they're from, how they talk. We see this nation raging against millions of image bearers every year as we slaughter them in the womb. We see sexual wickedness, abuse continuing to go on as people are raging against God's design of marriage and the covenant of sexual purity in that relationship. We see that being abused. And even now in June, this is Pride Month, as our nation has called it, where we've taken the very image that God gave us to promise us that he will never wipe us out with the flood again and has used that to a rally cry to rage against him, to rage against him with our sexuality. All around us, the nations are raging. We see these raging nations. We see us as individuals raging against God, raging against our king. But this passage, this psalm, has been something that has been such an assurance for me as we see a few things. We see one that raging is nothing new, nations that have raging has been happening since the beginning since Genesis chapter three, we see that our God is in the heavens, that Christ is on his throne, and blessed are all those who take refuge in him. So today what we're gonna be talking about is the rule and reign of our God. How it promises wrath for all the rebels and shelter for all those who trust in him. We're gonna do this in four different scenes as this kind of flows. The first scene we're going to talk about is the reality of the raging nations. The second scene is going to be the response of our sovereign God. Our third scene is then going to be the reality of the reigning sun. And our fourth scene is going to be the response for all of those rebel nations. So with that, we're going to dive into the reality of the raging nations. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain. Who are these nations? In Old Testament times, it would have been considered the vassal nations of this kingdom established by David where he made Israel a powerhouse in their area. They had several nations coming to serve them, to serve God's anointed earthly ruler, David, and his line. So originally this was meant to those nations who do not want to serve this Lord, this earthly king, or the Lord and God. In Christ's time, we see Peter actually reference the same passage, talking about the nations are Pilate, it's Herod, it's the religious rulers, it's the Gentiles, it's the Jewish people, it's everyone who rallied to cry out, crucify him at the death of our Lord. But now in the age of the church, we see that this extends to all nations, to all groups, all peoples as the rule and reign, as Christ has been placed in authority over all. Everything is now subject to this Christ. We are all vassal nations. Our nation is a vassal nation. Everything is under this authority of Christ, whether they will accept it or not. We are all either going to be rebelling against this king or we're going to submit to him. So why are the nations raging? In James 4, we see what typically responds for raging in our own hearts It's this idea that our desires, our passions are not being met. And that's no different than here. The nations rage because they want to be God and a God coming down, telling them, this is how you are to be. This is how you're to act. This is what justice is. This is what righteousness is. They don't like that. That goes against their desire. That goes against what they want to do. And so therefore, they rage. We do not want to submit to this God, to the rule of any God, let alone the one true God. And that results in us raging. So how do we rage? We disobey. We try to cast off the cords. We try to deny God's existence, deny that he has the right to tell us what to do, say that we can determine for ourselves what is good, what is right, what is moral. We don't need your laws. We can use our own. In Romans 1, 21-23, we see that it's when we exchange the glory of God, the Creator, for this glory of the created things, we are raging against the Lord. See this in an illustration. It's like, imagine there's this ocean, this sea, you're stranded, you're cast into the ocean, shipwrecked, the waves are coming, but you have a life jacket but it's one of those really sketchy ones that the airport gives you that just kind of goes around your neck to just keep your head above water. And it's uncomfortable, right? It's this thing around your neck, but it's keeping you above water. It's keeping you from being crushed under the waves, crushed under this ocean that's trying to kill you. The raging that's described here is if you took that life check, like, I don't like you on my neck, I'm going to take you off. That's the thing that's literally keeping you above water, but because you want to rage against it, you ultimately end up hurting yourselves. You're denying that the ocean will overtake you, all because of the discomfort of having this thing around your neck. That's what it's like when we, like Pilate, like Herod, like the Jews, the Gentiles in Jesus' time, when we stop looking at God's desires, at God's rule, and we start looking at our own fear, our own self-interest, our own ambition, and we use that to guide and direct us. So who are you among the raging nations? How are you raging against this God, against this king? Are there any areas in your life that you find you want to tell God, you don't get to tell me what to do here. This is my freedom. This is my will. This is what I desire. How are you raging against the Lord, against his anointed? Is it in your job? that unethical job that you know you're doing things that God would not approve of? That your corporation or you're operating this business in a way that is a denial of God's holiness, of God's justice? Are you raging against your family when you realize the call of a godly husband, a godly wife, godly children is to deny your own passions, to have to die to yourself, to do things that you don't want to do for others? But instead, you get angry. You get angry with your spouse, angry with your children. Because you don't get to do what you want to do, so you rage. Is it here? Is it in the church? Is it those brothers and sisters? Maybe someone who's wearing a mask that you're raging against? Because how could they wear this mask and deny their freedom? Or are you a person wearing a mask that's looking at those, not wearing masks How can I can't even love you because you're disagreeing with this rule with this pattern, with this law that the government's established? How are we breaking our bonds of unity here within the church? Because we're not getting our desires, because we're going to rage against God and his rule of us that we should desire peace and unity amongst the body of believers. But we choose to let our own desires, our own self-interest guide who we're going to actually love, who we're going to actually bear burdens for. So what is our response to God or what is the response of God to this idol worship? What is the response of God to this raging nation? That brings us to our second point, the response of a sovereign God. We see in verses 4 through 6 that he who sits in the heavens laughs, the Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. The first thing God does is a response is he reminds us of his positional statement. The first thing, our God, he who sits in the heavens. I think it's important for us to remember this. It starts with the position of who God is. He is not some earthly king. He is not some earthly power. He's not someone that we can just deny. He's not some carved idol who is unable to save. But he is the one who dwells in heaven. Psalm 115.3 says, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. There is no one that he has to consult." no one that he has to get approval from. There is no other sovereign that he's looking towards. He does all that he pleases. He is the ultimate God in control of all of our lives. He is in the heavens. He is above us, above us in power, above us in his position, above us in majesty, his holiness. Isaiah tells us even his ways and thoughts are greater than ours. We can't even comprehend how he processes through information. As an engineer, that's something for me that I just am fascinated by, that he can solve problems in ways we can't even comprehend. His, the way he works as God is something so above us that we can't understand it. But we know that it's good. We know that he's holy. After we get through this position, after we understand who God is, where he's seated, that he is seated in the heavens, there is no one he consults, It says he responds in three ways. He laughs, he speaks, and then he appoints. So the first one, laughs. What is this laugh? This isn't a cute little chuckle. It's not like when your baby does something kind of funny and he's like, ha that's so cute. No, this is a laugh of derision. This is a laugh of who do you think you are that you can come against the Lord Almighty? This is like what it talks about in Job 41, the Leviathan. As people come out, this mighty creature of the sea, and people come with these spears and javelin, it says the Leviathan laughs at them. It's a laugh that's brought about of no threat. There is no concern, no fear on the part of God that anything these nations, these raging peoples can do can harm him, can threaten his rule, threaten his authority. He is in absolute control, and he looks at the attempts of these nations, and he laughs. There is nothing they can do Then he speaks. He not only lasts, but then he speaks. The same God, the same being that brought the whole universe, everything that we know by the word of his power speaks. Psalm 46 says he utters his voice and the earth melts. Psalm 29, the voice of the Lord flashes like flames of fire. In Exodus, we just saw that God's speaking to the people and they say, Moses, we can't handle this. Can you please go up to the mountain? God can speak to you. We will be destroyed if we keep hearing this holy, sovereign God. The voice of the Lord is a voice of sheer cause. When he speaks, things happen. There's no argument. There's no discussion. It's a speak that comes about with a result. So the Lord speaks. And what does he do when he speaks? He appoints his ruler. He sets his king in Zion. The very thing that these nations are trying to do, they're gathering together like, we're going to choose for ourselves who's going to rule. God tells them, no, I've already done that. I have set my king on Zion. I have anointed my holy ruler. You can rage, you can gather, you can try to cast off the cords. That doesn't matter. I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Charles Spurgeon says it this way, God's anointed is appointed and shall not be disappointed. There is nothing the nations can do, nothing we can do. He has set his plan in place, a plan to put the Son of God to a position of ultimate authority, and there is nothing these raging nations can do about it. That's why he can laugh, because there's no threat to him. He speaks and he sets up his anointed, and this anointed is going to be established in Zion. Throughout Scripture, Zion is talked about as this place of great joy, a place of worship, of praise, where there's no sickness, no brokenness, no more sin, but ultimately it is a place where God himself dwells as our God. And the Lord says, God says that he will set his ruler to dwell in Zion. That is what's going to make that a great place to be. That is why it's so good that Christ is in Zion, because that's an eternal kingdom that will come to no end, where God himself will dwell and where his anointed will rule for all eternity. So for us, do you trust God today? Is this your idea, your concept of God? When you see the nations raging around us, when we see political turmoil, do you fear, like, God, it doesn't feel like you're in control. I don't know how you're going to handle this. When your political party... Threatens some policy? Does it make you concerned and worried? Do you forget who God is? This is a difference from being concerned because God's law is not being upheld or God's morality is being raged against. But it's a fear in your heart to say, like, God, I don't think you can handle this. I'm not sure you're still in control here. Do you believe that what happens today can thwart the will of God? Or maybe you're one who you maybe need to believe that God not only has the ability to set up who will reign in your life, but he also has the right to set up who will reign in our life. Today, in our identity kind of culture, where everything is about who you are, how you view yourself, do you recognize that God has the right, not only the ability, but the right to dictate to you who will rule you? And he says he does this here. So who is this ruler? This is our third point today, the reality of the reigning son. Verses seven through nine says, I would tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I've begotten you. Ask of me and I'll make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. There are a few other passages that we come in contact with when we talk about this anointed one. Psalm 110, verses 1 through 2 says, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Or Daniel 7, 13 through 14. And behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like the Son of Man, And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Originally, these passages were seen as God fulfilling his covenantal promises, particularly that in Psalm 2, to each person in this individual line of David. You see king after king coming in Judah. But if you're from Israel, you have to think like, really, is this it? God, I'm seeing what you're saying in scripture here about what this king's supposed to be, about this like everlasting kingdom, God's own son, rod of iron, dashing everyone against like potter's vessels, like that of potter's vessels. If you're a Jew in this time, wouldn't you be a little concerned I mean, David's grandson saw the kingdom split. Didn't even make it, like three generations. And then after that, we see king after king come. Many who do wickedness, who, diso- who disobey the Lord, who turn from his law. Some who continue to do good, but more who don't. If you're a Jew, you gotta be thinking, is this, it? Is this the kingdom you're talking about here? I don't see, I don't see this kingdom of everlasting kings What's going on? And then you have the Assyrians come in and wipe out Israel. And then you have Babylon come in and wipe out Judah. And they're in captivity. And you have to wonder, Lord, where are you? Where is this great king? Where is this great ruler that you have told us, that we've talked about in every one of our king's coronations? Who is this person? What was seen in part, we now to experience on this side of the cross and whole. In Philippians 2, 9 through 11, we see this as it's described about who this anointed one is. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is fulfilled ultimately in Christ. He is this ruler. He is this only son, this begotten son of God. He is the ruler of the world, the anointed one of God, this one that will reign forever and ever and ever. How did he become this ruler? How did he receive this authority? What did Christ do? He came. Jesus came. He submitted himself to the Father. He lived the perfect life, died the death deserved by all of us, all of us who have sinned, who fall short of the glory of God, who deserve death. He came. He was broken. Before he ruled this rod of iron to crush us, he himself was crushed. Before being dashed to pieces like potter's vessels, His own body was broken for us. Paying our penalty, God raised him back to life and with it gave him all authority over all nations. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. In John 17, we see Christ praying, asking, Lord, glorify your name, glorify me. And we see the response that Christ is now exalted, the name above every name's, He is our king. But now we get something that we don't like to talk about. As we see all these prophecies of old come rushing into the world in the person of Christ. The king is here. Now he's been exalted. But he will also execute his judgment. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. That's something we like to talk about today, right? The idea of the Lord with a rod of iron breaking people apart, treading out, extending the wrath of God on all those who disobey. In Revelations 19, we see this image even in a little more gruesome language. First, it introduces the one, Christ, on a white horse, holy with a robe dipped in blood the armies of heaven following him with the sword to strike the nations as he's carrying this rod of iron to rule. As he treads the winepress of God's fury with the name King of Kings and Lord of Lords, he bids a call to all the birds to come and gather because there's about ready to be a massacre. All of these raging nations are about ready to see the wrath of God poured out on them. It will crush them. It will break them. This is not going to be some atomic bomb dropped to prevent a long-suffering war. This is the king coming to conquer. This is that final decisive victory that once and all will make the enemies of God, the enemies of the Lord, a footstool. That will once and for all forever establish this new kingdom that ushers in the peace and righteousness of God, establishes the rule in Zion where there's no more weeping or pain, where we are God's people, and he is our God forever. Is this your vision of Jesus? Do you have a category for this of Jesus in your mind? Or is Jesus just your buddy to your pal, that friend, that Jesus take the wheel? Jesus loves us so much so that he gave his very life for us. He died the death that we deserve. There's no one who will ever love you more or do more for you than Jesus Christ. But he's not just your buddy. He's not just your pal. He is the one who is ruling and reigning in your life. One of the biggest dangers that's going to be facing our nation today is not some elected official. It's not some party. It's going to be a view of Jesus That is, he's not the one who's ruling. It's going to be a rule of Jesus. that He's just okay with how I live my life. We got an agreement here. I can do what I want to do. And at the end of the day, he's going to save me because he's Jesus. He's my good buddy, my good pal. It's this Christianity without a cost. Because there is a cost. You will actively have to decide that you will lose your life that you will submit yourself to this king, to this Lord, because he is the only one who is worthy to be this Lord. It calls us to give him everything, to keep nothing of yourself, to let go of your desires, and as Rich already talked about, this joy that we get from that. This is not this religious ruling process where if you're having happiness, then you must be doing it wrong. This is the Lord saying, do you want true joy? Do you want peace? Then come to me. I have joy. I have peace. You're not going to find it out there. You're not going to find it living for your desires. But you will find it with this one who is reigning. He is reigning. He will eventually execute God's wrath. This is sure. This is presented as something that will happen. Just like he has set apart as Lord... The wrath is coming. So what is going to be then our response? What is the response of all these rebel nations, these nations, these groups, these individuals, people that are gathering to rebel against their king? The response that's given by the Lord to them is again one of grace. It's a call of repentance. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. lest are all who take refuge in him. After setting the stage, these realities, we see the raging nations. We see the response of God. We see the reality that his son is reigning and is ready to pour out the wrath of God. We don't see God just saying, okay, now go do it. Hit him. Get him. We see one of reconciliation. We see a warning, a call to our kings, to our rulers, and to us. The first one we see is be wise. What does it mean to be wise? In First Kings three, as Solomon gives this pronunciation of judgment, it was seen as a very righteous judgment. All Israel heard of the judgment that the king had rendered. And they stood in awe of the king because they perceived that the wisdom of God was in him to do justice. Here we see being wise directly results in doing justice. Hosea 14.9 Whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them for the ways of the Lord are right and upright walk in them. But transgressors stumble in them. To be wise is to know what is right before God, to know what is just before God, as God defines it, not as our culture defines it. We don't get to define justice to God. God defines justice to us. Being wise is to see that justice, to see what is right before God and to walk in it. So that's the first call to these rulers, to these kings that are raging. It's our first call to us. Be wise. Be warned. The Lord dictates that those who do not do justice, that those who are not wise, those who do not rule as the Lord dictates will potentially be overthrown in this age, but ultimately there'll be a coming wrath. In Psalm 82, we see that God says, like, I will cast you down. You think you are these kings, these gods among men? I will cast you down and you will fall like any prince. This is a warning, a good warning from the Lord That judgment is coming, but turn to the sun. be wise and be warned, serve the Lord with fear, and rejoice with trembling. Recognize that there is someone to whom all will be held account. We should both be terrified and rejoice that evil does not win the day, that death does not get to win, That at the end of time, all the rebellion against this Lord will be put to an end. We should be terrified because we recognize in ourselves that we too are rebelling against this God. But we can rejoice because that he has provided a savior for us. He has provided a refuge from this coming judgment. But like a coil ready to spring is the wrath of God. It's ready to punish all in wickedness. Every wrong will be paid. Every evil will be held up to account. He is a just God, and that should cause us to fear and rejoice all at the same time, and so much more because of Christ. In our lives, we all experience hardships, wrongs that are done to us, but also in our lives, we all do wrongs to other people. For those of us who in Christ, we know that the wrongs we do are covered by His Son because of our faith in Him. For those that do not have Christ, judgment will be coming. And we see this final call, this final plea, be wise, be warned, serve the Lord, kiss the son. The kind of an interesting statement that doesn't really go with our culture. We don't kiss people that we hold into authority. Um, We don't go visit the governor's mansion and all kiss the hand of our governor. We don't do that anymore. I think that's a good thing, um, but kissing the sun is to honor the sun. It is to recognize your position before the sun. It's not to say that it's to recognize that I am not God and you are, and that is a good thing. No matter whether they accept the gospel, which would be the best case scenario, all rulers should be held under account that they will themselves need to humble themselves before God. And those who don't are overthrown. We see this in King Uzziah. So he was someone who believed in the Lord. But the Lord said, you have become too prideful. You think that you're in control here. And we see him give him leprosy. And we see King Uzziah having to repent, to kiss the son, to recognize, like, God, you are God and I am not. We also see this in Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, We see him thinking he's ruling almost the entire known world at the time. And he thinks he's a pretty powerful person. And we see him starting to rebel against God, getting people to worship him as God. And we see God drive him mad. And whether he comes to faith and repentance or not, we see at the very end of his life, Nebuchadnezzar at least knows, like, I don't know who this God is, but he's greater than I am. I have to serve him in some way. So no matter where they are, everyone will be forced to come to this reality where you will be faced with the idea that you need to kiss the son. Hopefully it's that of repentance and trust in him. For his wrath is quickly kindled. There is a wrath that's coming for the Lord to punish all disobedience. This wrath could be just natural consequences In Romans 1, again, it says that God gave them up. They rejected God. They wanted to worship creatures rather than the creator. He says, fine, go for it and enjoy the consequences. There is a natural order of suffering that comes when we disobey God. Sometimes he just gives us up to that suffering. This is like, once again, going back to that person in the ocean with the life jacket. You remove the life jacket, you drown. That's the result. However, there's other places where we see an actual effective application of the wrath of God, where it's not always just natural consequences will get you. Sometimes God himself moves. We see that with the Tower of Babel. We've seen that in Exodus against Egypt, throughout the Judges, the history of the kings of Israel. And ultimately, we see that in Revelation, that there's a time coming where God is going to execute judgment. Judgment. Now, this term quickly can be kind of confusing. You're like, it's been like 3,000 years since this is written, so how quick are you, God? The point here is not to set aside time the way we think of time. The Lord doesn't think of time like that. He's a timeless being. But the intent here is to display that there should be an urgency. It can come at any moment. It can come at any time. Every second that you're rebelling against this king... You're heaping up wrath for you on the day in judgment if you're not in Christ. There should be an urgency there. It should be expedient. You should be fearful that the wrath of God could come at any time. It is ready at a moment's notice for God to judge the world. So there is a judgment coming. We don't like talking about this very much. But if we don't talk about what our judgment deserves, the fact that we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God, that the wages of that sin is death and eternal punishment from God, because He is that good, that holy. We don't get to just enjoy the way this psalm ends. This whole psalm that's talking about establishing God's king, this raging nations, you wonder, how is this going to end? How is the Lord going to bring this thing home in this final psalm? What pronouncement of ultimate might? What pronouncement of ultimate judgment? How is He going to show that I am the king of everything? You almost expect that in our worldliness, right? You just talked about the wrath, the wrath that's quickly coming. Now, this last line should be about how you will destroy everyone and you will reign forever. That's not how the psalm ends. It ends with, Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Yet again, we see the heart of our God to extend grace to the rebels, to those kings who say, We don't want you in our lives, we don't want you to rule. He says, blessed are those who take shelter in him. There is a wrath coming. There is payment for sin that will be required. But I have a shelter prepared for you. We know that as we turn to Christ, as we believe that he is this anointed king, he is this ruler, as we declare that he is God's son, the one who paid for our sins, and as we put our faith in him, we can hide in this shelter that God's prepared for us. No longer are we casting out, floating in an ocean of God's wrath, ready to take us for as long as this common grace can hold us above water. He takes us out of that ocean and he puts us in a shelter. A place where we do not have to fear the coming wrath. A place where we do not have to fear the coming judgment because we know that because of Christ, what he did on the cross will save us. And he saves us in this shelter. He saves us in a place where it will be so good. Psalm 84, verses 10 through 12 says, For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. I pray that we may trust in him. This passage means something for our nation. How do we interact with our nation as we start seeing, particularly the United States, beginning to rage against the Lord? I think here we see calls throughout Scripture to pray for them, to pray for our nation, pray for our rulers, those who are in power, that it might go well with us. We don't want to pray for the nation that they may become the church because we're the church. We're the ones who are given the keys to the kingdom of heaven. We're the one who is given the message of the gospel. We're to pray for our rulers that it may go well for us, that we may have a free society, that we can openly share the gospel, that we can gather together as God's people. We should engage, engage our government. You should in Jesus' day, that was just paying taxes. They had to pay taxes. They didn't get a say in their governmental system. We do. We should take that seriously. You should vote. You should try to use any levers of government to help ensure that the government continues to perform these God-given roles, that it continues to allow us to be able to meet. But ultimately, we should trust. We should trust God that even if this gets taken away, even if The United States of America is no longer a free country in 10, 20, 30 years. We can still trust knowing God is in control. He has not changed. His position is still in the heavens. What about for yourself? How are you raging? Have you evaluated your lives? In what areas are you waging against the Lord? I pray that you be wise, be warned, and fear the Lord, and kiss the sun. There's a reality that we face. The nations are raging. People are raging. However, the response of the Lord is to laugh because his plans cannot be thwarted. They can't be thwarted by COVID. They can't be thwarted by any policy. They can't be thwarted by you, by me. He has set his son to reign in Zion. So what will you do? Will you rage and be crushed by the wrath of God as he ascends to his throne? Or will you kiss the son? Believe in his salvation and be blessed. Jim Sayers, upon reflection of Psalm 2, he adapted it for a song. Uh, The third verse is how I'd like to close here. It says, rulers be warned and kings be wise. God's only son, do not despise. But serve the Lord with humble fear. Rejoice with trembling and draw near adore the sun, his sudden wrath can soon destroy you in your path. Yet safer all beneath his wings who hide in Christ our Lord and King. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time, this time that we can come, that we can worship you, Lord. We just pray that as we may see our nation raging as we may feel this raging nation, as we ourselves may be raging against you, Lord, I just pray that you allow us to be wise, to be warned, to serve you, but ultimately, Lord, that we may put our faith and trust in you. You alone have eternal life. With you are joys and pleasure forevermore so that you may be glorified, that our joy may be filled. Lord, I pray that we may turn to you now. It's all in your son's name that we pray. Amen.